We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. I think it's technically my turn to introduce how, this how, book. How, how. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Reread, the podcast where we reread books from childhood and talk about how they make us feel now as adults. And on this episode, we are talking about Diana Wynne Jones's. Not Wynne. Not Wynne. Why? Wynne? Wynne? Okay, let me look up the official How? pronunciation to make sure I'm correct. You could pause for a second as we get to that. <laughs> I've always said Diana Wayne Jones. Wayne, like Wayne? More like Wayne. Um, I'm not sure. Like I believe that's correct because I've heard other people call her that as well. Uh-huh. But let me double check before I get my favorite <laughs> author's name wrong. One sec. Diana Wayne Jones. <laughs> yeah, so this one has it more on the win side. I just realized we haven't mentioned the book title yet. Here, let me start over. Well, yeah, yeah. And on this episode, we're talking about Howl's Moving Castle by Diana Wynne Wayne Wine Woon Jones, who is Morgan's favorite author. Woo. Indeed. One sec. Sorry, I'm still trying to make sure because, like, I have literally heard... Actual authors who have met her pronounce it differently, and that's why I'm bothered. We're never going to learn our lesson of, like, looking these writers' names up beforehand to make sure that we're pronouncing them correctly. Oh, God, why would we do that? We're Americans. We don't learn lessons. Okay, people are doing wins, so I guess it's f***ing win. That's a win for me right there. Uh, (laughs) That's... (laughs) All right. Diana Wynne Jones, Morgan's favorite author. Yeah. Uh, I never read this book. I knew about the movie. I mean, you've watched the movie, right? I actually watched it recently or rewatched it recently to kind of compare and contrast because my oh. memory of it was pretty lackluster, I guess, because <laughs> yeah. it had been at least a decade since and it wasn't. It wasn't my favorite Miyazaki film, and it still isn't my favorite Miyazaki film. No, agreed. But I, I was just curious, because... Wait, just to check, did you rewatch before, during, or after you read the book? I rewatched before, because oh. I wanted to make sure that the book was my most recent experience with this, I guess, property. <laughs> So, <laughs> yeah. I see why you did that, but I also feel like that will absolutely affect your reading of the book. Yeah. I, so it'll be interesting to see. There are a couple of elements that I think the movie did much, much better. I mean, there, it was a lose-lose situation. Either I was going to watch the movie last and that was going to spill over into my memories of the book. And then I was going to make a fool of myself and say, oh, remember this part when the witch gets the youngified or whatever and you're gonna be like oh casey that didn't happen in the book you stupid dummy so uh i don't know i mean i'll preface by saying if you have watched the movie which i feel like is going to be more people's exposure Mm -hmm. to this property it's fairly similar for maybe the first third and then wildly diverges. <laughs> and one of the 
things that's really, I think, a big divergence is the two main characters who look very similar in the movie and the book, but like are ultimately extremely different characters. I also had actually seen the movie before I ever read the book. Oh. Yeah. I discovered Diana Wynn, I guess, Jones, <laughs> and like her books. You sound so personally offended by the fact that it's well, not pronounced the way you thought it was. I've literally checked this before, so I must have been looking, I guess, just in all the wrong places. Mm. But I'm going to check this again afterwards because I, <laughs> this is one of the few author names I made an effort. I went out of my way to make sure I was pronouncing it correctly. And now I discover that maybe I'm not. So it's very frustrating. But yeah, I discovered her books in, I believe I was in eighth grade. And my mom got me a omnibus edition of her series, Chronicles of Questomancy. It had the first two books in it. It had a cat on the cover, which I think is why she got me the book. She's like, it's fantasy. It's for kids. It's got a cat on the cover. That sounds like Morgan. Oh, like, my God. My mom reads, but she's not. She likes very different books than I do. So when she used to buy books for me, she would normally either ask like shopkeepers for help. Or she would, like, just kind of look for things that made her think of me. Mm -hmm. Thus, I think, cat book. But this book literally changed my life. Uh. <laughs> she, she, like, I love that series. This Crestomancy series is my favorite series of all time. Her Dalemark Quartet is also hugely influential for me. And, of course, uh, Howl's Moving Castle, which is probably her best-known book, is one of my favorites of all time. So... It, she changed so much of how I think about fantasy as a medium, how I think about writing and storytelling, and just also character work, honestly, and um, pretty much everything. I, she's just hugely influential <laughs> in my life. But yes, it was interesting because I had read, I had watched the movie before because I'd been watching Miyazaki movies since before I can remember. And so we watched that when it came out. And... I had mixed feelings on the movie. Like, I, I agree with you. I don't, I didn't think even that it was Miyazaki's strongest movie, but I also, you know, really liked particular scenes. So when I went into the book, I definitely had certain expectations. Um, and then the book, of course, is uh, hugely different. And at this point, I probably can't watch the movie. I would get too upset because I've, I really like the book and I really like how the plot operates in, the book and the characters and all that. And I think it would bother me to watch the movie. But yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what else to say. Like, I reread this book every year. I own three different copies of it uh, for my last <laughs> birthday. My sister got me this beautiful, like, limited edition illustrated. It's gorgeous. So I had already reread this uh, in January. And uh, we decided to do this. And I was like, well, I'll reread it again. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> This is uh, very close to my heart, and uh, I already know that you don't hate it because I was probably in too delicate of a state today for mm. us to do this if you hated it, but how, how did you feel? Uh, I just want this on the record for our listeners that I had plans to do a big old fake out where I was going to say, Morgan, please don't cry because I love it, and then there's going to be jazzy music and everything. <laughs> that has been next. Uh, okay. I don't love it, mm -hmm. but I don't not love it. <laughs> uh, it's, 
it's I'm, I have very complicated feelings about this, and I actually don't know on which side I fall ultimately. But I can say that I did love the first half of the book. The middle part started to lose me a little bit, especially one particular little twist, I guess. And then I absolutely hated the last two <laughs> chapters of this book. But it's not like necessarily a bad hate. It's this reference is not going to make any sense to you because you're not a sports person. But it's kind of like the end of game four of the 2020 World Series when you have all these professional baseball players who are very good at their jobs all suddenly f***ing up in this one glorious instance. Here comes Kiermaier. Phillips has tied the game. Arose Arena coming around. Throw home. Now he stumbles. But the ball gets away. Tampa Bay wins it. To me, the end of the book is just such a mess, but it's such a glorious mess. <laughs> I guess that's how I feel. Again, I don't, I don't know, I don't know, I don't, I don't know where I fall, but I do think that it helped me realize something about my own tastes in books. Mm. Bear with me while I break this down a little bit. I am not a fan of books that treat their plots like puzzles. And this this is not new. I think you, Morgan, are certainly aware of this, and I'm sure that mm -hmm. our thousands of listeners are aware to some degree as well. But I never really gave it too much thought about why I felt that way. And it wasn't until this book that things clicked for me, ironically like a puzzle, <laughs> where I realized that there's a tendency for... Is there a term for this kind of genre? It's like it. I mean, it's kind of a mystery. Okay, so like <laughs> there's a tendency with mystery novels to obscure, in my opinion, the most interesting characteristics of characters, the plot, whatever, until the very end when you can have the big reveal that then explains away the puzzle. And you know me, Morgan. I'm the kind of guy that wants my heart torn up and ripped to shreds from the very beginning. This, this is why I hated the ending a little bit, which we'll get into again with the summary. I yada, yada, yada. But some of the most interesting elements of what's happening with Hal and Sophie and the witch and the fire demons, all these elements become really, really interesting. By the end of the, they're, they're, I don't know. The twist makes them really, really interesting. And I, I, and I've had this experience before with a book you've recommended to me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and where it's just like, oh, why couldn't I have known about that from the very beginning? And it's like, again, we'll get into this, but it's not like really that <laughs> well kept of a secret. It's just not explicitly mentioned until the end. And I think that's where my frustration comes in, because it's like the twist itself isn't interesting to me, except for what kind of reactions it might inspire. But because it happens at the end of the book, we don't actually really see the reactions. <laughs> I, that's not to say that there aren't interesting elements 
throughout this novel. It's just that the most interesting elements to me <laughs> all come at the very end. And it's just like, arg. <laughs> <laughs> And I think it's so interesting because literally as I was rereading, I was wondering if you were going to have that reaction. (laughs) Because like you said, I think I've given you two books in the past that I would, one of them, the twist is really obvious early on. And so that one, I'm like, that doesn't even count. Like everyone knows that twist. But the other one is a much more subtle twist and then really makes you sort of reassess everything you've read in the books thus far. And so I was reading this and I was like, hmm. I wonder. (laughs) Um, And so I am a little bit gratified to know you well enough that I'm correct. For me, I think part of it is this is a fundamental difference in taste. That is my favorite kind of book. Yeah. I love books, especially if they're well done. Like, I don't like twists for twist's sake. That really bothers me. But if you can pull off a really good twist that makes me reevaluate what's happened in the book thus far and make me go back and reread and be like, I understand exactly what this character was doing here. Like, now that I have this extra bit of information, I I read the rest of the book and it makes sense in this new, full, different way. That is my favorite. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And possibly because I'm pretty good at figuring out twists. So it either leads to me being pleasantly surprised, which doesn't happen very often, Uh or it leads to me being able to, like, feel like I'm figuring out clues and putting things together. And that's very exciting for me as a reader. You're regular Nancy Drew. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so I wouldn't necessarily... I mean, there's a specific moment in like the last chapter with Howell that completely you suddenly understand so much about what he's been doing over the entire course of the story that Mm -hmm. you did not know to begin with because you're very much in... Sophie's perspective. I love how we're throwing around character names and I haven't explained who any of these people are. But like you're very much in the main character Sophie's perspective, even though it's in third person. And so you are only privy to the things she sees and she has an extremely biased view of how. And so for me, I think that's really fun, (laughs) especially when an author can put you so much into a perspective. She can literally show you things and have you dismiss them because the character dismisses them. I think that's really good, skillful writing. And that's something I really enjoy reading. And certainly something I attempt to do with my own writing because I think we do as as people. We miss things because we are so within our own perspective and we see things through our own specific lens. So I understand well i mean i don't understand from like an empathetic level why you don't like it because i i think it's the best Uh but i do conceptually understand that this is a thing that is not your favorite and therefore that you have lesser feelings about the book because of it indeed i will say i think this is a very one of the things i like about diana Wynne jones is that she kind of expects you to keep up without her explaining anything. And this, in fact, leads to some books. I've read some of her books and been like, whoa, I have no clue what's happening. <laughs> because, like, she writes for children. I mean, she was a middle-grade children's author. But she always said that kids were smarter than adults, that adults were trained to, like, need things explained to them. Um, and she was like, I always find that my kid readers keep up so much better than the adults do. So I don't ever try and explain anything to them. And I really do enjoy that mentality to a certain extent, even when it leads to me being like, what? (laughs) 
<laughs> because I think there's just a certain level of, of trust that you'll be able to pick up the clues, the subtext, the everything she's laying down. And so I think that a lot of her books, I wouldn't even say they have twists because there's certain things that like in this book you can figure out fairly early on because it's just there on the surface, but she's not going to explain it to you. And that's that's just something I enjoy. I understand that you like seeing the reactions to it. And I certainly agree in terms of the other book I lent you, which I'll just straight up name in case our listeners are interested, which is The Thief by Megan Whalen Turner. That one, first of all, it's the first in the series, so you end up seeing everyone's reactions later on. And I do think you would really like the rest of the series if you gave it a shot, but I'm not going to force you. <laughs> that one, that one's, um, I think, a bigger, a much bigger reveal and a much bigger twist. And that one, you know, it is slightly disappointing that you only get like, you know, 10, 30 pages of reaction. I can't remember. This one, the revelation is mostly about Powell as a person and Sophie gets that time to have a reaction. So I will say I don't understand this one quite as much, but I've been rambling a long time and I don't want you to explain, but I feel like we have to do the summary before I can let you explain. Yeah, uh, let's do the summary. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Sorry, I'm going to be talking for like a whole 30 minute stretch, but after that, I'm going to cede the floor to you. Okay. All right, so we enter the world of Ingri, which is a magical world. I'm going to read the first line just because I think it so perfectly encapsulates. It's a nice line. In the land of Ingri, where such things as seven-league boots and cloaks of invisibility really exist, it is quite a misfortune to be born the eldest of three. Everyone knows you are the one who will fail first and worst if the three of you set out to seek your fortunes. So this sets up very much like our our typical fantasy world. You know, we can expect a lot of the fairy tale superstitions to be true. And our main character, Sophie, is the eldest of three daughters. She is the daughter of a hat maker, um, along with her sisters, Letty and Martha. And her and Letty are from their father's first marriage. Martha is from his second marriage to this woman named Fanny. So after he passes away... It's discovered that he has run up some debts because he really wanted his children to have great educations. And it turns out the hat shop wasn't doing that well and education costs money. So Fanny's like, I'm so sorry, girls. Uh, We really can't afford to have you go to school anymore. Letty, you're going to go be an apprentice at the pastry shop. Martha, you're going to go be an apprentice to my witch friend. And Sophie, you're going to stay here and be an apprentice to me and eventually take over the hat shop. And Sophie's like, well, that sounds boring, but sure, I guess. Sophie stays behind and begins working in the hat shop where she um, is mostly making the hats. And she ends up just being like, I think in a way we can all empathize with right now. (laughs) (laughs) Confined inside a lot. Just doing the same (laughs) task over and over again. Not feeling like there's much meaning to her life. And she starts feeling very scared of going outside. And eventually she's like, you know what? I haven't seen Letty in a really long time. And she's just in town at the pastry shop. So on May Day, I'm going to take the day off and I'm going to go see Letty. So she does. And she discovers that uh, having been cooped up inside all this time, the outside world is really frightening. <laughs> Which is also very true. <laughs> yep. <laughs> 
hashtag relatable. <laughs> and she, there are all these loud people and sounds and, you know, everything going on. Some guy tries to flirt with her on her way there. That's frightening. Mm. And I should mention, in the larger context, she's also scared because recently this castle has appeared over her town of Market Chipping. And it's said to belong to the wizard Hal. And everyone is like, Hal eats young girls' hearts. And so everyone's like, you can't, if you're a young girl, you can't go out alone. Otherwise, the wizard Hal is going to eat your heart. He's a, he's a regular army hammer. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, Anywho. This book is so topical. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is very stranger danger. And I will say that, like, even though everyone's like, wizard Hal eats women's hearts, no one is, like, looking to deal with this. They just let his castle stay mm. up there, moving around. So, you know, maybe it is topical. <laughs> maybe someone should have gotten involved there. But, yeah, so, you know, when this guy starts flirting with her, like, Sophie's got stranger danger going on about men. On top of her, like, just generally being freaked out. So she's like, please leave me alone. She runs all the way to the pastry shop. And uh, there is very relieved to see her sister, Letty. <gasps> But it's not her sister, Letty. Oh, my Letty. God. Martha has actually taken Letty's place. They did a spell to make Martha look like Letty and Letty look like Martha so they could switch thoughts. And Martha's like, yeah, because, you know, my mom is a bad person. <laughs> Fanny sucks. <laughs> I didn't want to learn magic. I actually want to have 10 kids. I want to work at this pastry shop and, and find a guy who I really like and then get started on those 10 kids. And Letty wants to Letty wants to learn magic, so we switched. And also, Fanny is taking advantage of you. She's exploiting you. She doesn't even pay you. And you're, like, making the hat shop so much money. She's like, you're a genius with clothes, and now Fanny is just using you. And she's gadding about on the money you're earning her. So you see, children, the Bible clearly teaches us. You can never trust an employer. Sophie's like... Whoa, um, that is not how I see the situation at all. But she's just kind of in shock. And then uh, Martha has to go back to work. So Sophie runs off to think about all of this. And she's just very confused. So she's like, okay, I'm going to ask Fanny for a wage. Fanny's like, oh, of course. And then never gets her wage. So Sophie's like, maybe I am being exploited. <laughs> yeah, this is about unpaid internships. Again, very yes. topical. Danny Jones knew what she was doing, okay? <laughs> and this all kind of comes to head one night. Sophie is working in the hat shop alone, and this woman comes in, and Sophie just kind of snaps at her, and she's like, well, that felt good. Like, I just lost a customer, but uh, that was nice. And then this other woman comes in with a strange man in tow, and a very tall, beautiful, imposing woman dressed in the most luxurious clothing. And she's like, I would like a hat. <laughs> show me what you have and Sophie's like oh, she's not gonna want anything from here but okay I guess the woman begins looking at the hats and just every time she sees one she's like oh, mysterious allure that's so basic I should mention also Sophie's been talking to the hats the whole time but she's been making them this is an important plot point Yes. and finally she's like oh, these all suck and also you suck you've been getting in my way so I'm gonna curse you cause I'm the witch of the waste Oh my it's like God. a really evil, well-known witch who has threatened to, like, harm the king's daughter and everything. And so it's like, oh, I don't know you. And also, what? <laughs> and the witch is like, serves you right. That deals with you. Also, you won't be able to tell anyone you're under a spell. Peace out. 
So the witch leaves, and Sophia discovers that she has been turned into an old woman. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, looks in the mirror, and she's like, well, guess I should do something. <laughs> Her reaction is so muted. It's just like, oh, this happened. Yeah, I mean, like, literally, it's explained later that she was kind of in shock. Yeah. But um, it's very much like she talks about feeling remote during this whole sequence. And she's like, well, I can't stay here. Fanny would freak out. So I guess I'm going to leave to try and seek my fortune. So <laughs> she's just like in two seconds, pulls together a bundle and just heads on out to leave and seek her fortune. No destination. She just goes. On her trek, she has three encounters. The first one is with a scarecrow in a hedge who she props up. The second is with a dog also caught in like a hedge fence thing who she cuts loose and, and he... By him, she finds a walking stick that she begins using. And the third is with a, a farmer uh, of 40, who she thinks of as a, a strapping young man, who just thinks that she's a witch. She's like, huh, that's funny. Couldn't then, possibly be true. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, as she's beginning to wonder whether she's going to have to sleep out in the cold all night, she comes upon the moving castle, which I should say, if you've seen the Miyazaki version, the book describes it very differently. It is literally a traditional looking castle that floats above the ground. It has no legs. It floats. I so, do like Miyazaki's version. I mean, it's very cool, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, no, I... Diana Wayne Jones also really liked Miyazaki's version. I read an interview with her and she's like, I have multiple figurines of it around the house. Aww. And I was like, that's cute. That's really she cute. She was very cool about him reinterpreting her story. Yeah. Um, it sounds like they had a really good, like, I don't think they ever met each other, but they communicated through people and she really liked what he did. So Sophie makes her way in after like trying three doors that she can't get into. Finally, she finds one she can. Goes in and she finds the inside of a castle. <laughs> Actually, a very small room where there's a fire and like a whole bunch of stuff. Just like a lot of stuff. And also a young boy. And not like super young. Again, if you've seen the movie, he's about 15 in the book. Uh, his name's Michael also, not Markle, which is a weird choice the English dub of the movie made yeah yeah <laughs> i guess michael sounded Just, sounded too plain and her name's sophie <laughs> i don't know i don't know anywho <laughs> so michael's like what are you doing here and she's like well i can't tell you i need to talk to hal is he in michael's like no she's like cool gonna stay the night Woo! and settles down in an armchair by the fire and just solidly ignores him and Michael eventually goes up to bed. Sophie's kind of dozing. She starts talking to kind of herself and to the fire. She's like, oh, you could almost be a person. Those could almost be eyes and a mouth. And then the fire's like, yep. <laughs> Hello, I speak. Uh. Turns out the fire is a fire demon named Calcifer. And he's like, so you're under a spell. I can tell. Sophie's like, oh, you can? <laughs> Beautiful. Can you take it off? And he's like, oh, sure, sure, sure. But like, gonna need you to do something for me first. She's like, I'm not gonna make a deal with a demon. That sounds sus. <laughs> and he's like, you don't understand. There's a contract between me and Hal. 
He is taking advantage of me. I'm stuck here all day while he's gadding about. And Sophie's like, well, in that case, I'm going to help you out. What do I What do I need to do to help you? And he's like, um, well, I actually can't tell you. That's part of the whole thing. And she's like, ah, do you trick me? <laughs> you asshole. <laughs> he's like, no, 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 no. You could totally figure it out. It'll just take like a month or so. And that'll give you time to like, give me time to figure out how best to take off your spell. It'll totally work out. So he's like, fine. Better come up with an excuse for me to stay. So she goes back to sleep. Wakes up the next morning, discovers she's actually super mad about getting turned into an old woman, and that she was in shock, and also that she hadn't dreamed the events of the night before. The fire is actually a fire demon. As they set about making breakfast, Hal returns. He's hot. Uh. I just, I feel like a, a defining part of Hal's character, character trait is that he's like, really, really, really ridiculously good looking or at least he makes himself appear very good looking yeah. so i feel like this is important to lead with he would want to be recognized as hot first he is both hot and also the guy that was flirting with sophie when she went out on may day so there you go connections should we mention here that you have the hots for hal as well i feel like that's a very important thing to sure to uh <laughs> i I will say, I think you overestimate my, like, Howl feelings. To be fair, I do love Howl a lot. He is one of my fictional men who I love. <laughs> that said, he is not in my top five. <laughs> There's another Diana Wayne Jones character that is. There might even be two that beat him in this competition from her. Oh, my her. God. But yes, I, like many other women before and women after me, people attracted to men find Howl attractive. Diana Wynne Jones herself does not understand this. And I will say that if I met Howell in real life, I would hate him. Yeah. But fictionally, I find him extremely attractive. Indeed. That's an important differentiating thing to say. <laughs> I, I suppose I'll put my opinion down here on the table and be like, I'm with, uh, I'm with Jones. Indeed. Anyway, Sophie's like, I'm your new housekeeper. And he's like, mm, are you? And generally avoids making any commitment to letting her stay and just kind of like avoids <laughs> honestly addressing the situation at all. He's just like, la 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 la. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that is a very accurate description of how, uh, how interacts in the world. So <laughs> Sophie later on describes him as a slitherer outer mm. in that he doesn't like committing to things. And we'll just kind of avoid things if he can. And that is a very good description of him also. The lady is Indeed. getting on it. He's the kind of man who will sleep with you and then sneak out the window in the middle of the night. He is a, a womanizer. Um, and that's something that Sophie finds out very shortly is that he will fall in love with these girls and court them until they've fallen in love with him back and then get bored of them and run off. And then I slink out into the night, never to talk to her again. He is at least self-aware enough about the fact that he does this, that he always gives fake names. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because otherwise the girls try and come and find him. <sighs> but yeah, so he's fickle, vain, commitment-phobic. He's a great catch. <laughs> oh, and he's incredibly messy. The castle is filthy. The next couple of chapters are like Sophie cleaning the place. It's mm -hmm. just one chapter, really. But it's her cleaning and describing all the disgusting things. 
And honestly, she's so unimpressed by the entire situation that she begins to think Hal has no powers. So as she's cleaning, she's also searching for clues to help her uh, break Hal and Calcifer's bargain. And so she uh, one day is like, all right, I've done everything but Hal's bedroom and the backyard. Off to do that. Now that Hal has left, she goes to clean and finds that actually he didn't leave at all. <laughs> he had sent a double. Turns out Hal known as a very powerful wizard, actually is a very powerful wizard. <laughs> Shock. Ah. Uh. They have a little kerfuffle in which they both basically nail each other's bad character traits. Hal's like, you're noisy. Sophie's like, you're a slither router. Romantic. <laughs> <laughs> Life continues on. Sophia's mostly finished cleaning, except for Hal's bedroom, which she's not allowed in, and the backyard, which she's also not allowed to clean. And Hal is taking a break from wooing the current lady, because I guess she's being a little cold, and he's trying to, you know, absence makes the heart grow fond of her. And he always takes, like, five million hours in the bathroom. <laughs> and so, one day, after Sophia's cleaned, he's like, all right, I am off to do my bathroom time. Sophie didn't touch anything, right? She's like, no, I did not. And uh, that was a lie. He goes in, comes out like two hours later screaming <laughs> because uh, she has touched his spells and now his hair is slightly ginger. <laughs> Shock, horror, despair. Actually, what are the actual things he yells? Despair, anguish, horror. So I got two out of the three. Then he starts producing green slime from his body <laughs> and shrieking and wailing. <laughs> like he just... Magic happens. <laughs> and uh, Sophie and Michael flee the house, come back to find it full of green slime, and Sophie has to reclean everything. So she also finds out that the woman that he's been wooing, who's been cold to him, is one Letty Hatter. Oh no. And she's like, Oh no, Martha. Why did you say that name? Martha's posing as Letty. Oh. She's like, Oh, god damn, Martha. <laughs> so she's like, I need to leave and warn Martha tomorrow because Hell's gonna break her heart. She has discovered at this point no uh she either has discovered or will discover shortly um that hal doesn't actually eat young girls hearts it's a metaphor for the fact that he loves them and abandons them <laughs> so yeah so sophie's like i need to go talk to martha make sure she's okay and um, so she's like i'm leaving the castle tomorrow however when she goes to leave all of a sudden the scarecrow from the hedge is back it's hopping. It's frightening. It's got a turn up for a head. It's all very alarming. <laughs> Sophie's heart literally jumps and she's now in an old lady body. So this is not good for her heart to be going off like that. So she's like, oh my God, Calcifer, get us away from here. Calcifer, stuck to the fireplace, cannot tell what's going on outside. So he just takes Sophie's word for it, makes the castle go extra fast to get away. Michael, who had gone out for the day, returns and is like, oh my God, thank God. It's all good. Hal is not talking about my Letty Hatter. He must know some other Letty Hatter. And Sophie's like, what? And he's like, well, I, Michael's like, I'm in love with this girl, Letty, who works at the pastry shop. And I thought she loved me back. Like, we had plans. But then when Hal started talking, I was like, oh, my God. Uh, but turns out she has never met him once in her life. It is all good. Sophie's like, oh, <laughs> Sophie realizes that if Martha Letty is not the one that Hal's seen, it must be Letty Letty. And she's like, oh, my God. And if ha Letty told Hal her secret, then she must be serious. <laughs> this is bad. I got to go see Letty. Oh, God. 
I am so sorry. This is going to be, again, a really long summary because yeah. this book is just kind of jam-packed with things happening, and they're not inconsequential things mm-hmm. for the most part. Anyhow, Hal gets back, gets mad at Sophie for wearing out Calcifer by making him go super fast with the castle. But after being pissed at her, the next morning when he tries to leave, what is there but the Scarecrow? Oh my god! He uses his super strong wizard magic to make the Scarecrow go away. Sophie has had, again, more heart palpitations from seeing the Scarecrow. She's freaking out in the chair. He and Calcifer, like, do something. And Sophie's heart goes back to normal. And he's like, my apologies, Sophie. You were right. I was wrong. You need to calm down and you need to rest here the whole day. Michael, make sure Sophie does nothing. Make sure she stays right here and does absolutely nothing. I'm off to see Letty. Bye! (laughs) So Sophie's like... I need to go see Letty. <laughs> oh my god, wow. I realized I've failed to explain an entire thing about the moving castle thus far. Which is that the door opens into four different places. Ah, uh, yes, yes. So there's the castle door. There's the Port Haven door, which is a dockside city. There's the Kingsbury door, which is Ingrid's capital city. And then there is one door that they do not know where it goes. Anyhow, she leaves out the castle door, to be clear. She's like, I'm going to walk to where Letty is. <laughs> My 90-year-old body. <laughs> she makes it like two steps before Michael's like, what the f*** are you doing? And she explains the situation. She's like, Hal is courting another Letty. <laughs> She's like, oh, I see. You wanted to warn her about, okay, I got, I got you, I got you. But you can't go there. You need to rest. And she's like, I am going there. Regardless of what you say, you cannot stop me. He's like, okay, then I will go with you. But we are going with the seven league boots to make sure... That you don't have to work too hard. They get there eventually, after many mishaps. <laughs> and are greeted by Mrs. Fairfax, who is the witch that Letty is studying with. And she's a chatty one. And she's like, so nice to meet you, see you. Unfortunately, Letty is with someone right now. And it seems to be going really well, so I can't let you interrupt. I'm so sorry. But, you know, it is the wizard Hal. And I think that, like, Letty's finally giving in to him. And then finally, like, she can become his apprentice and he can teach her magic. And also, they can be in love. Oh, my God. It would be so great. Blah, 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 There's a dog there (laughs) that gets loose during this conversation and tries to run off to interrupt Letty and Hal, which gives Sophie the opportunity she needs to spy on Letty and Hal. And she stumbles upon them looking beautiful. I should say also that Letty is like f***ing gorgeous. This is one of the reasons why um, Martha as Letty is getting so many suitors is because Letty is just really extremely good looking. And so it's this like very carefully posed portrait essentially of like, Letty on a bench, hell kneeling down, holding her hand. There's like cherry blossoms or some shit. <laughs> I don't think it's actually cherry blossoms, but there's some kind of blossom happening. And Sophie's like, oh no, I'm too late. I guess I should leave now. <laughs> Before Hal finds out they're there too. Um, so she and Michael peace back out, back to the castle. And Michael goes back to work on his spell while Sophie feels bad for Letty. And Michael's, like, having a really hard time with the spell. And he's like, Sophie, can you help me? I'm just, like, very, very confused about this spell. She's like, I don't know anything about witchcraft, but sure. She goes to help him with the spell, and I'm going to just read the first part of the spell, because, again, this is important for the plot. So the first part of the spell, actually, I'll just read the whole thing. Go and catch a falling star. 
Get with child a mandrake root. Tell me where all past years are, or who cleft the devil's foot. Teach me to hear the mermaids singing, or to keep off envy stinging, and find what wind serves to advance an honest mind. Decide what this is about. Write the second verse yourself. Sophie's like, I, I don't know. And like, they go through all of these like increasingly bizarre speculations about how to complete the spell. And finally, Sophie's like, enough of this. It's not working. Let's just go do what it says. Let's catch a falling star. So they decide to go to these flats and using the seven leaf boots, have Michael try and catch his falling star. Eventually, they see one falling. He races to catch it. He gets there in time. He's ready. And then the star is like, what are you doing? He's like, I am trying to catch you. The star's like, let me uh, die. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The star is like, no, I, if I fall, I'm supposed to die. And Michael's like, don't you not want to die? Like, you don't have to. And the star's like, I'd rather die. <laughs> <laughs> so after witnessing star suicide, Michael and Sophie are needless to say pretty depressed. I don't know if I would describe it as a suicide because it seems like a very natural part of the life cycle of a star, I guess. Yes. It's like if someone was dying of old age, but they did just watch a star choose death over life. So, you know. They are a little depressed. Uh, yeah. They go back. They're depressed. Michael's like, I'm not going to work on the spell anymore. Hal comes back. He's like, you guys had a busy day. Because <laughs> he did, in fact, notice that they were there while he was quoting Luddy. And then Michael tells him about the difficulties with the spell. Hal's like, wait, this isn't the spell I left you. He's like, Sophie, did you open the door to that to my secret place? She's like, yeah. He's like, hmm. Did you go through? She's like, no, but we figure it through. Just the tip. Just the tip indeed. <laughs> He's like, yep. So when you did that, the spell that Michael was supposed to have must have gone through and this came in instead. So I'm going to have to fix that. Also, Michael, did you say you tried to catch a falling star? And Michael's like, oh, yeah, it was really sad. And Hal's like, it could have been worse than sad. You have no idea the consequences, young man. And Kelsifer's like, what? You, you caught one, didn't you? Hal's like, yes, but... Trails off. This might be significant. And he's like, all right, I'm going to go get the spell back. Goes to turn the door to, it's like, a, they have colors for the different spots on the door. So like Port Haven's blue because ocean, Kingsbury's red because like that's the color of the angry military, I think. And black is the one for the unknown place. And he turns it black down, sees that Sophie and Michael are watching avidly. <laughs> and he's like, fine, y'all can come with, come on. <laughs> So they go through and find themselves in a different world. In fact, it soon becomes clear, not to Sophie, but to anyone who's reading, that it's our world. <sighs> it's later revealed to be Wales specifically. So I will say that one of my greatest disappointments in life is that in the movie adaptation, Howell, like, doesn't have a Welsh accent. And he should. <laughs> Howell has a Welsh accent. Uh, well, you know, it's funny because one of my greatest um, joys from the movie is the fact that they excise the whole Wales plot. So. Anywho. <laughs> <laughs> so, in attempt to track down his spell, they have to go to his sister's place. His sister's mad because he's like, in her mind, a layabout who does nothing. There is a certain element of how he has a very, like, slapdash mentality to doing spells, which gets talked about a lot. And he's kind of brilliant, but, like, can't always apply it to things correctly. Uh, anywho, go around, they meet his niece, they meet his nephew. Eventually, they find out that 
his nephew, uh, it was his homework assignment that came through and replaced the spell. And so he turned in the spell to his English teacher to be like, look, and didn't try and not do the assignment, like literally got lost. And I only have this instead. So they go to talk to the English teacher. His name is Miss Angorian. She is not very impressed with Hal, but Hal's impressed with her. <laughs> so he's like, one, can I get my soul back? Two, this whole poem, you know, it's really familiar, but I can't place it. What is it? And she's like, it's a poem by John Dunn. He's like, oh, right, of course. Can you read me the second half of it? And she's like, fine. I shall. And now I shall for you. Oh, look at that. If thou beest born to strange sights, things invisible to see, ride 10,000 days and nights till age snow white hairs on thee. Thou, when thou returst, will tell me all strange wonders that befell thee and swear nowhere lives a woman true and fair. She attempts to go on because there's a third verse, but Hal has gone absolutely white and he's actually it's cool. We're going to leave. We're going to leave. We're going to go. We're out. We're out. See you. Bye. Also, you want to get dinner? Mm, no. Okay. Think about dinner, though. They leave, and he's like, well, the Witch of the Waste curse just caught up with me. Because, as he's revealed previously, uh, the Witch of the Waste, he tried to have a thing with her for a sec there. And uh, when he tried to peace out on her, uh, she tried to put a curse on him. And the poem, John Den's song, comprises the elements of the curse. So he does the calculations. He's like, there are only three things that haven't come true. One, like, uh, he's gonna hit 10,000 days soon. I think Midsummer Day. So that's its own thing. But I haven't heard mermaids singing, haven't had anything happen with the mandrake root, and there's been no wind to advance an honest mind. He's like, thankfully, I am horribly dishonest. <laughs> All I have to do is stop these things from happening, and the witch won't be able to get to me. Also, I need to make more efforts than ever to have the king not employ me. The king of Ingri isn't a Weird situation where he, the royal wizard, has disappeared. Wizard Sullivan. Prince Justin, the king's brother, went off to look for him. He's disappeared. The king is potentially about to go to war with a couple of different nations. And it's kind of a rough time for him to not have his brother <laughs> or his royal wizard with him. And so he's been kind of like indicating that maybe he would like to make Howl royal wizard and uh, have him help deal with it and find them. And Hal has been trying to wiggle out of this as he does everything. So he's like, all right, Sophie, here's what we're going to do. You're going to pretend to be my old mom and you're going to go tell the king that I can't do this shit. First, though, you're going to visit my old teacher because uh, the king's pretty intimidating and you should probably have a trial run at this. They go to visit Mrs. Pentstemon. Pentstemon, there we yeah. go. Who is Hal's old teacher with Sophie pretending to be his mom. And she's like, Mrs. Pendragon, because again, this is the last name that Hal's rolling with. Hal is going to the bad. <laughs> we must stop him. And Sophie's like, uh, going to the bad? Has he not got to the bad? Indeed. Penstemon, through talking with Sophie, is able to figure out that the contract with Calcifer is part of what is making bad things happen, and she deduces that the Witch of the Waste also must have made a contract with the Fire Demon because of things. Eventually, contracts like that lead to bad sh going down because contracts with demons are never a good idea. And she's like, you must break this. And Sophie's like, uh, I, I, what? I can't, mm, mm, I don't know about that. 
And Mrs. Penstemon's like, oh, but you're a very powerful witch. You've enchanted your walking stick basically into a wand by how much you talk to it. Like, she's like, you talk life into things. Oh, man. It should also be mentioned at this point that, like, Sophie's been darting house suits and talking about how they're built to pull in girls to the extent that she's accidentally sewed a charm into the clothes that makes them draw in women. So after that, she goes to talk to the king. Her conversation with the king is an absolute disaster. (laughs) Because she not only doesn't talk him out of making Hal royal wizard and blackening his name, as it were, but she actually reassures the king that Hal is not just doing this for money and glory, but that he honestly doesn't want to do it, and therefore he's the perfect person (laughs) for the job. (laughs) So so he's like, oh, God. Um, on her way out of the palace, she gets lost. She ends up wandering around the streets of Kingsbury on her own. And who does she run into near Mrs. Pentstemon's place? She's trying to get back to to get directions. But the Witch of the Waste, who reveals she's just murdered Mrs. Pentstemon because she hasn't told her where Hal is. So Sophie, in an attempt to also not reveal she knows where Hal is, <laughs> bluffs and is like, I'm going to talk with the king about the rights for hat makers. <laughs> And ends up getting escorted by the Witch of the Waste back to the castle, where she's then ushered in to see the king again and is like, Hal says he won't do it unless you give him your daughter's hand in marriage. And the king's like, my daughter's like two years old. No. (laughs) And sends her back to Hal's. (laughs) Hal gets a cold. He's very depressed about Mrs. Pentstemon being dead. There's some concern about the Witch of the Waste catching up with him. They're trying to find a new place to move. Essentially, the um, inside of the castle is actually based in Port Haven, and they want to move the actual base of it somewhere else to try and evade the witch. So Michael's like, there's this place in Market Chipping. It's an old hat shop. It just got sold, or it's about it's being sold. So he's like, hmm. Uh, Hal attempts to go to Mrs. Pentstemon's funeral. He goes in disguise. Oh, crap, I forgot the dog arrived. (laughs) The dog from Luddy's arrives while Hal is sick and reveals he can turn into a man. Hello. Basically, he can turn into a man very momentarily. Then he turns into a different kind of dog. Uh, So he manages to pull himself up into a man enough to tell Sophie that Luddy sent him um, and that she's very upset. And Sophie's like, oh, no, she's had her heart broken by Hal. So, Hal, when he goes to Mrs. Pentstemon's funeral, disguises himself as a duplicate of the dog, but the Witch of the Waste still catches up with him. There's this massive battle, but Hal manages to escape her and reunites with Sophie and Michael and Calcifer and the dog, and is like, we need to move to Market Chippin' ASAP. So they do, and as they're doing that, Hal's like, hey, Sophie, where do you want the other doors to lead to? And Sophie's like, I want a nice house with flowers, because she's thinking about Letty and uh, Mrs. Fairfax. And then... Hal's like, Sophie, in the shop, what should we sell? And Sophie's like, flowers. <laughs> they open up a flower shop. Um, Hal ends up parking the castle on the edge of the waste where there's just a huge, whole bunch of flowers blooming that uh, Wizard Solomon started growing and then Hal kept growing in his absence. Sophie is feeling a little bit weird during this period of time, running the flower shop and everything. Oh, crap. I should mention during the freaking wizard battle, Hal heard the mermaid singing. Mm. That's one thing down for the curse. Anyhow, Sophie's feeling weird about the whole thing. Now she's like in her old home, essentially, and seeing people she used to see every day and they don't recognize her and she just feels funky and everything's funky and weird and no one's happy. She tries growing some things. She makes some really pretty plants. And then she makes one weird squashed baby-looking plant. And Hal's like, what is this? 
And then he pulls it out, and it turns out it was from a mandrake root. Mm. So that's get a child by a mandrake root down. Only thing left is the wind to advance an honest mind. At some point, the dog manages to pull himself up to talk with Sophie again to reveal that Luddy found out that Sophie had been turned into an old woman and that Hal knew about her. And so she sent the dog to Sophie. And Sophie's like, what? (laughs) What? 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 (laughs) Hal realizes because the dog's now changed into a different dog, the dog is under a curse. And he's like, Sophie, Casper, how the f*** did you not tell me this? This man is in pain. So he takes the spell off the dog man. Dog man, who previously went by the name of Gaston, so that's what we'll call him, I guess. Well, he's called Percival at this point, for some reason. I think Letty maybe called him... Oh, God, there's... He's a mess. (laughs) Casper reveals, like, two seconds into this, that he is not a complete human being. A man who has parts that are missing, and he also has some of the parts of another man. He is, like, a Frankenstein. Well, Frankenstein's monster. monster. Okay. <laughs> That's why I said a Frankenstein monster. You just took a big dramatic pause there. Yes. <laughs> just waiting for you to make that exact uh, comment. It was a yeah. trap that I laid oh that you God, fell you... into. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just that I obviously forgot to say monster. Uh, anyhow, he and Sophie end up having a conversation about how, you know, he's too late to save her from... It's implied falling in love with Hal. Uh, yeah. This is never said actually out loud. Everyone knows what they're talking about, but no one is actually saying these words. Hal reveals he also knows that she's under a spell to be old and that he and Calcifer tried to take it off multiple times, but she's the one keeping it on herself. And she's like, what the hell? No, I'm not. Also, I'm leaving. I'm out. She doesn't actually say this part out loud. She thinks it in her head. She's like, I'm going to leave. Sophie makes plans to leave the next day. But before she can leave the next day, a knock comes on the door. Who should it be but Fanny? Turns out she lived next to the door with the mansion with the pretty flowers. And Fanny's like, Sophie? Sophie! (laughs) And essentially talks about how distraught she was when Sophie disappeared and etc. etc. How she feels so sorry, like she overworked her. And Sophie realizes that Fanny had been desperately miserable at the hat shop and had been like a relatively young woman who suddenly widowed with three girls and no clue what to do. So she kind of in her head forgives Fanny. Then more people just start showing up. Like Michael comes back with Martha, Letty and Mrs. Fairfax show up. It's a whole party up in here. And so obviously Sophie can't leave now because like her entire family is rolled up somehow to her place. And they're all hanging out in there when all of a sudden Calcifer's like, Hal, the witches found your family in Wales. Oh, my God. And Hal, in a disarray, because he's been sleeping this whole time because he got drunk the night before in Wales, (laughs) gets out of bed, rushes off to Wales where he chases the witch off. Party continues at Hal's place. (laughs) Miss Angorian shows up. Uh, She had showed up once before being like, my ex-fiance Ben Sullivan ran off and I think to maybe the same place Hal moves off to, I think that's his guitar. Can I please just take the guitar? And Sophie's like, no, out. Miss Angorian shows up again and Sophie feels bad about like being rude to her. So she's like, fine, you can stay and party, I guess. Mm. And eventually Miss Angorian's like, I need some fresh air. Can I just go out into these fields with the flowers? And Sophie's like, sure, just don't go too far, okay? Later on, there's an announcement that comes in the witch's voice that's like, 
Hal, you've fallen for my decoy. I have taken Miss Angorian to the waste. And Sylvie's like, oh my god, it's all my fault. I need to go save Miss Angorian. So she takes the Seven Leagues boots, heads off into the waste, <laughs> arrives, is soon captured. Turns out the witch's grand scheme is that she's trying to build the perfect man. Relatable. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, God. She, she wants to do this so she can rule angry, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Why she needs the perfect man to do this, who knows? Oh, uh, well, I think we, I think we know. I might start a war for the day. So she has this like headless body that's sitting there. And she's like, I've taken all the best parts of Prince Justin, Wizard Solomon, and now all I need is Howl's head. And I should mention, because again, I've forgotten the thing that happened, because this is such a dense, dense book that before Witch's announcement came, the Scarecrow showed up again and merged with a skull that's been sitting around in the castle the whole time and was like, I uh, was created by Wizard Solomon and I'm here to like reclaim Percival because he's also part of Wizard Solomon and Prince Justin, as we find out. <laughs> the Scarecrow shows up again, begins battle with the witch. Then Hal shows up. He does big wizard magic. Witch turns to dust. Sophie puts her shawl around the headless body's <laughs> shoulders. <laughs> Just, you know, delicate. Hal's like, we need to get back. And Sophie's like, actually, we need to rescue Miss Angorian because the witch took her and she's somewhere here. And he's like, no, you don't understand. Miss Angorian is the witch's fire demon. Do you uh... let her in? Did she touch anything? Sophie's like, uh, yeah, the guitar. And he's like, oh, crap, we need to get back. So he conjures up a wind. And then he tells her the truth <laughs> about what he's been doing the entire book, which essentially boils down to that he was looking for Prince Justin and Wizard Solomon and trying to come up with a way to stop the witch. But he's such a coward that he couldn't make himself do it without pretending that he wasn't doing it, which is why, like, he had bought the skull, for instance, which he could tell had was somehow connected to Wizard Solomon. And he'd done all these other things that, again, retroactively make sense. Uh -huh. But, like, he couldn't be honest about it because if he was honest about it, he would nope out of doing it because he's too much of a coward. And Wales wasn't actually my weak flank. It was always Calcifer because I knew he wouldn't give away a fellow fire demon. And I was relying on you being too jealous to let her in. Then they get back to the castle. Hal's like, I'm going to break the f***ing guitar. Miss Angorian comes out, is like, well, the curse is fulfilled, so I can lay hands on your heart now. Grabs Calcifer, because Calcifer has Hal's heart. Hal collapses. Calcifer's like, please don't. His heart is actually really sensitive. Oh, God. And Sophie's like, okay, time to do battle. She's like, stick. Hit Miss Angorian and no one else. Stick begins hitting Mrs. Angor Miss Angorian. Miss Angorian tries to evade. People are trying to stop her from leaving. Now the stick can't hit anyone because she's using Michael as a shield. There's like, I think this is what you were describing a little bit with the baseball thing. Like all these yeah. highly competent people <laughs> just running around <laughs> in this chaos. Sophie's like, all right, well, I'm going to trust they have that covered. Calcifer, can I take Hal's heart back without killing you? And he's like, you're the only person who probably can because you talk life into things. That's why me and Hal wanted, thought you could do it. So she's like, okay, have another thousand years. Plucks him off. He's like, oh, I'm free. Calcifer leaves out the chimney. She pushes the heart back into Hal's chest. 
and she notices her reddish hair is getting in the way as she does this. <laughs> she gets the, hel- uh, the heart back into Hal's chest. It starts working like it's supposed to. He wakes up and he's like, oh, I gotta save Sophie. <laughs> She's like, no, you need to, I'm right here. You need to stop Miss Angora. And he's like, oh, right, okay. He uh, manages to get the witch's heart from her and by crushing it, that destroys the fire demon. Hooray, the day is saved. Sophie and Hal take a moment to like actually look at each other. <laughs> and he's like, so I think we should live happily ever after. And uh, they're just like holding each other's hands and grinning while everyone is literally trying to talk to them because uh, Hal's big magic also got wizard Solomon and uh, Prince Justin restored to being in their individual bodies with all their correct parts again. <laughs> the only one who gets through to them is Michael, who's like, Calcifer's back. Mm. And they're like, Calcifer, you didn't have to come back. Calcifer's like, well, as long as I can leave, it's fine. Plus, it's raining. And that's the end of the book. That might be the longest summary ever. <laughs> Please talk. I, I need to not talk. Well, to respond to your point at the very beginning before this summary, what was your point? I wanted to know more about your feelings specifically on the end here because you kind of talked about it mm-hmm. in a generalization. But I think I said, for me, enough was made clear prior to the end that it's not like a huge twist and so i was a little i wanted more elaboration from you basically on your feelings on the end once we had context so i agree that (laughs) the quote-unquote twist at the end isn't really much of a twist because we theoretically most readers will have picked up on enough pieces to theorize what's going on but the problem for me is that because it hasn't been made explicit within the narrative, Sophie doesn't really have an opportunity to think about it for herself. An example that comes to mind is of of a book that does it better, in my opinion, is Pride and Prejudice, where we have the proposition or proposal I guess, uh, from yeah. Darcy. <laughs> very <laughs> different. different. <laughs> very different. Uh, the proposal from Darcy comes in the middle of the book, and then the rest of the book is an opportunity for characters to learn and discuss and figure out for themselves and maneuver with this information. And it's like a very same thing where as readers, as astute readers that we are, we can tell that Darcy's got the hots for Elizabeth. So it's not really a surprise when it comes, but because the narrative gives it to us much, much earlier in the narrative, we can actually get to the interesting stuff, in my opinion, of people coming to terms with this new knowledge and how it changes everything. I'm not so interested in doing that part as a reader of getting new information and going back myself and be like, now this all makes sense for me. I'm much more interested in how characters do that. And so that's part of why I don't tend to like these types of mystery novels, because they they somewhat by nature have to withhold that information until the very end. I'm sure there are examples of of mysteries that are able to do that more seamlessly and make it interesting throughout. But uh, yeah, it's just like, and it's also what makes Pride and Prejudice interesting is that you have the 
come to Jesus moment for both Elizabeth and Darcy, where they both have to go through their own emotional journeys, I guess. And this book doesn't get there, I guess, with how specifically we see that happening with Sophie throughout the book, where she kind of comes to terms with these new things that she learns about herself and growing out of her this this like self-deprecating belief about herself that as the oldest sister she's also the shittiest sister and therefore her life is just destined to suck which i actually think is really interesting mindset to have and plays into some other things that i think are really cool so but we see all of that with sophie we don't see that change with how and that was a frustrating bit for me i'm not saying that it's bad that how's an asshole i actually like that how is an asshole and that the book is pretty replete with examples and pretty confident in saying over and over again how kind of sucks mm -hmm. i appreciate that that it's a different kind of love interest i guess and that's actually a this is an aside, but I actually think that's one of my faults with the movie is that it makes Hal more of a generically good guy. Yeah. So the love story falls flat. It's It just comes off as very generic. We don't get that here. And that's actually something I appreciate. But something that's frustrating for me is that the book doesn't necessarily confront him with his shittiness and force him to reckon with that. There's mm. a there's a line that I actually really liked for what it was displaying about how that I wish the book actually followed up on. It's kind of near the middle, I guess, the latter half of the of the book when Sophie just point Blake asks how, like, why do you try to seduce all these women all of the time? And how in his very how ways he sighs and blah, blah, blah. And he says, if at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again. I keep trying, he said with great sadness. But I brought it on myself by making a bargain some years ago. And I know I shall never be able to love anyone properly now. Which clues us into his uh, general heartlessness. Yeah. And it's like, okay, that's nice. And it also gives us some insight to his attitude, like his very self-centered attitude. And it, and it seems like the novel acknowledges that that reasoning is bullshit. Mm -hmm. Because if you, in fact, know that you can't love properly, then the whole endeavor to trying again is nonsense. And it's clear that it's just about making yourself feel good because... Who doesn't like feeling they can just seduce any hot woman they see? I just wish he faced some consequences for his behavior. So it just comes off like, oh, he's 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 a bad boy and he's so sexy and dreamy. But <sighs> to be fair to Hal, he does almost get his head put <laughs> on a Frankenstein monster of a corpse by but, one of his ex-lovers. So he does, in fact, almost face consequences. 
Yeah, but, yes. but that's the thing. He almost faces consequences. But you look at the end of the book, and this is why the the end of the book is so <laughs> such a train wreck for me, because not only does he get his quote unquote happily ever after, which let's be honest, this relationship's going to last like four months and then they're going to be done with each other. So he gets his women. His, his uh, acolyte, Michael, remains his loyal, devoted subject. Uh, he gets to keep his magic. Calcifer sticks around of his own free will. How increases his standing with the king in the kingdom. And there's even a moment, oh, that just in the context of the scene, it makes sense. But in the larger context of the book was so aggravating because the other wizard, Solomon, actually apologizes to Hal for trying to bite him when he was a dog. <laughs> and it's just like... If anyone needs to be apologized to in this book, it is certainly not Hal. <laughs> and that's where the frustrating bit for me comes because the book sort of makes these limp gestures to the fact that Hal is an asshole, but it never hits harder on that. There's a bit right after that quote that I read uh, where Sophie makes this incredibly pointed criticism about how she understands Hal's sister better. Hal's sister, in the scenes that we see with her, is just so frustrated and disappointed in Hal uh, for various reasons. So Sophie makes this comment, and it's like, what would have been cool? Because we see that if Hal has a soft spot emotionally, it seems to be with his family. Like, he's certainly very close with his niece. And I just wish, because the chapter kind of just ends with Sophie making that comment, and I wish the chapter kept going, and we could have seen Hal get, like, angry and respond to that. It'd be like if we got the proposal scene in Pride and Prejudice, and the chapter just ended with Elizabeth saying no, and we missed out on the back and forth between Darcy and Elizabeth getting really to the meat of what's going on. So there, there are moments like that, that by saving it to the end, where we explicitly learn that Hal gave up his heart, and this explains basically everything about him. And I know this would be a very different book, <laughs> but for me, it would have been much, much nicer to get that information explicitly said earlier. So then Sophie and Hal could have had a conversation about it. Hal could be like, well, I don't have a heart, so of course I'm going to be an asshole. And then Sophie could have been like, no, you asshole, you're an asshole because you're an asshole. And I bet you were no different before when you when you did have a heart. And Sophie could be like, F you. And he could be like, F you. And then they could come back and be like, actually, you know what? We both had points. Blah, blah, blah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I'm rambling at this point. But yes, that's sort of the crux of my frustration for this book. Mm. Also, I mean, the, the ending of the book is literally noise because literally... <laughs> You know, first Fanny shows up and then Martha shows up and then Letty shows up and then other people show up. And then you learn that Percival is actually two different characters <laughs> that we've been hearing about this whole time. And he was actually a dog before. And then you learn that this. <laughs> to be fair, we knew number... he was a dog way before that. But well, right, right, right. But it's like the the number of times where it's like you can say. X is actually Y. In this book, it happens all the freaking time. And well, I know that's kind of 
part of the point. Yeah, that's a theme. That would be a theme. But it's <laughs> to me, it was it, by the end, it was getting a bit too much because it's just like we learned that <laughs> Wizard Solomon is actually Ben Sullivan, who is actually Miss Agorian's fiance. Well, but we not learned actually. that Miss Angorian. Yeah. Well, I know exactly. That's what I mean. <laughs> then we learned that Miss Angorian is actually the witch's fire demon. But then we learned that the witch isn't actually in control. Miss Angorian is actually in and control. She's actually the, the one behind the whole plot of creating this perfect and then man. Sophie is actually it's a witch herself. And then the dog is actually Gaston from the beginning. But he's actually Percival. And then he's actually Prince Justin. And the scarecrow is actually Gollum. How actually? How is that game losing my mind at the end of the book? It's just like this So wait, okay. Point. <laughs> a couple of things that I <laughs> forgot to actually add in the summary, though, which is that all the people randomly showing up is not random. Hell deliberately plans to have all of them show up <laughs> to basically stop Sophie from doing anything stupid. <sighs> so I did forget to mention that. It does like initially you're like, why are all these random people showing up? And then Hal's like, I mm-hmm. did this on purpose, which I do think is an important plot because I point because when I was first reading the book. My very first time, and I remember this vividly. I was like, this is a bad coincidence. You know, when authors write yeah. bad coincidences. And so when then Hal's like, oh, I did this deliberately. I'm like, okay, thank you for explaining this because otherwise I was annoyed. And could thank you, you for bringing argue? up your frustration so I could remember to explain to the listeners. Yes, yes. Uh, I do have a question. So you talking about bad coincidences. Could you not make the argument that it's a bad coincidence that as... Sophie is leaving the town now as an old woman that she just so happens to run into the scarecrow that is Wizard Solomon's magical servant and that she also happens to run into the dog that is actually Gaston, that is actually Percival, that is actually Prince Justin and Wizard Solomon combined. (laughs) Here is the thing that I think works really well about this book. And then I'll double back to address some of your other comments. Because it's set in a world that's like fairy tale world, essentially. The fact that, and Sophie deliberately calls this out in the text, that she has those three encounters. And mm-hmm. she says the third one is the farmer, which is also what I said. But I think technically it should be scarecrow, dog, moving castle. Those are the three encounters, I think, technically. It works because that's a real thing that happens in this world. And I should say, I don't think I mentioned this, there are two more books in this series, and the um, Power of Three thing ends up happening again in the next one. So for me, it works, that particular instance works because (laughs) Dinoid Jones literally goes, yeah, I'm going to give you coincidences. I'm going to give you three of them. So it's a magic Mm. thing. Like it's, it's that fairy tale thing. So that works for me. I will say if I had to be nitpicky about a coincidence and I like this one. So like, I'm not actually mad about it, but if I had to pick one Mm -hmm. I'm irritated by, I would say this one, I feel like is the least justified by the book, which is the fact that Sophie and Hal do meet each other before she gets old woman. It doesn't actually bother me, but I actually like that because that's the whole reason the witch comes by to curse her in the first place. No. No? No. Why does she come by? That then? would be the movie. In the movie, it's because they meet. Because in the movie, she doesn't have sisters. 
in the book, it's because Gaston slash Percival, who the witch has with her at this point, oh, has right, right, right. information, and he's been thinking about Letty, because uh, Prince Justin, Justin had met Letty and tried to hit on her, and et cetera, et cetera, uh-huh. gets stuck in Gaston slash Percival's head. He's trying to avoid giving the witch certain information. He thinks about Letty to try and stop himself. She gets out from him that uh, Letty's from a hat shop because he remembers that much from talking with Letty. The witch goes to the hat shop, thinks Sophie is Letty, curses her. So it actually has absolutely nothing to do with her meeting with Hal. It's a total coincidence. Gotcha. So oh, that's, that's, why... that's kind of a bummer. Sorry. I, I no, just no. want to say, because I, I like the idea that the witch is just so petty, and this is how her character is cast. The witch is just so, so petty. In my head, the way it worked is that she saw this interaction and her jealousy just went through the roof over literally nothing. But I, yeah, okay. Yeah, in the Sorry, movie- Sorry, that got lost in the shuffle of all the other actuallys. <laughs> right. In the movie, um, Hal doesn't just meet Sophie as normal Sophie, but like they get attacked and he ends up escorting and saving her and it's all very heroic. And I believe in the movie, the witch- that is the justification for the witch to curse her. I will say it wasn't because I confused the movie and the book. I just, this book is very dense, as you yeah. said. And so there's there's a lot, there's only so much information I can take in, especially on a first read. So right. forgive me. <laughs> okay, so dumbly back. Actually, to stay on the movie for a second, just because I think it's funny. You talked about uh, how you think one of the things the movie did worse was like flattening hell out into a much more stereotypical hero, which I absolutely agree with. And there's this great meme on Tumblr. The movie is how Hal remembers their relationship starting. Uh, <laughs> and the book is how Sophie remembers it. And I was like, that feels very, very in character and correct. So I'm going with that for the rest of all time. But yeah, so um, about how getting his comeuppance slash being an asshole slash all of those things, we do get slightly more nuance to how even before the end, um, which like when... One of the issues is that when Sophie's trying to attempt to blacken his name, she ends up saying some unintentionally good things about him. And then she's like, oh, I guess those are true. I guess he's not the worst. <laughs> I think at some point there's a line about this. I wish I had written it down. Where Sophie kind of admits a little bit to herself that like because she's being so on guard against him, she does end up emphasizing his bad qualities. Which is not to say they aren't very bad and very there, because they are. <laughs> but like, uh, for instance, you know, he never charges anyone more than they can afford for a spell. Uh, he's pretty generous about that. He is good to, you know, his niece and nephew, etc., etc. So, like, we do get to see some moments of him being a slightly better human being um, pre the end. I have I have the line. Maybe, oh. I think. Do you want me to? Well, why don't we try it? Okay. Sophie is speaking to the king, and she says, Well, he's fickle, careless, selfish, and hysterical. Half the time, I think he doesn't care what happens to anyone as long as he's all right. But then I find out how awfully kind he's been to someone. Then I think he's kind just when it suits him. Only then I find out he undercharges poor people. I don't know, your majesty. He's a mess. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I feel like he's a mess is like the real mood for Hal. And honestly, for Sophie, they're both absolute messes. But uh, that wasn't quite the line. There's another line that's in Sophie's internal monologue where she comments. That is the part where she 
admits the nice things about him, though. Well, there is a line. I also wrote this down. She thinks to herself, Hal showed his kindness rather strangely, but considering all Sophie had done to annoy him, he had been very good to her indeed. Is that? No. I believe it's part of the whole scene where she's trying. They're sort of discussing about how she's in love with him without actually discussing he's in love with him. She's in love with him. And I think at some point she... Uh, it's I'm not going to find it, so I'm not even going to worry about it right now. The line exists. That's all people it need exists. to know. And I think that, you know, and certainly letting Michael stay, he... I didn't mention this. He's an orphan. He was homeless before Hal let him stay with him. So you do definitely get inklings of, like, the fact that Hal is not complete trash. You also get some inklings, at least, that his relationship with Sophie is at least reforming how he deals with women. Mm-hmm. These ones are more subtle, so this is going to be my my argument. And I'm not, I'm, I'll just front load this and say, I can't argue that, like, Hal gets his comeuppance. I certainly think he goes through a very harrowing <laughs> experience of almost getting turned into a Frankenstein monster. But, no, certainly uh, he never gets, like, Letty never rolls up and is like, you horrible man. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was like, Sophie, you could do better. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, he, he's not dealing with having his womanizing so much. And he's never, I will say this either, I don't think he's ever in doubt of Sophie loving him back. I mean, they're very, they have a conversation around the idea of her loving him without actually explicitly talking about it or like getting into a relationship. It's a whole thing. So like, Certainly, if you're looking for that kind of moment for him, I don't think it happens. But you do see him when they're moving. He explicitly wants it to be how she wants it to be. He asks her about the house with the what kind of doors she wants to places. And he gets her the flowers and the house and all of that. And you begin to see him be more considerate of that. And you find out, too, that part of why he continued seeing Letty was trying to get information about Sophie. Uh-huh. Uh, And certainly the whole Miss Angorian thing, he knew she was the fire demon. So that's its whole own thing where you find out he wasn't actually doing that nonsense. And the fact that he does fall in love with her, not knowing what the f*** she looks like, other than she looks like a 90-year-old woman. Mm -hmm. This is not the Miyazaki situation where she, like, goes back and forth between points and age. She is old ass (laughs) 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 <laughs> for him to fall in love with her. not He's not pretending to be nice. He's being his asshole self instead of his, like, cool playboy self. She's being her absolute worst version of herself, like, impetuous, nosy, bossy. And so I think a lot of the appeal for both of them is the fact that they they both meet each other and initially get to know each other as the worst versions of themselves. This is a case if you can't handle me at my worst. Yeah. (laughs) But I want to say this because I do think it's really key. And it sort of has to do with the try, try again thing. Because I think the first time or so I read this, I was like, but if like the whole reason he can't fall in love is because Kalsar has his heart and that keeps him from essentially feeling things as deeply, then how does he fall in love Mm. with Sophie, right? Like, how does that even work? And it wasn't until a few rereads in that it occurred to me, like he loves Michael too. It's because Kalsifer loves them. Mm. because Calcifer has his heart. And that's why he trusts whoever Calcifer lets talk to him. They're sharing a heart. So 
Hal's able to fall in love with Sophie as well, which I thought was like a cool detail that's like, again, never on the surface. But like, once you can put those dots together, you're like, oh, of course, no shit. <laughs> and it could be that even Hal didn't realize that was necessary, that he truly thought if he tried enough times, maybe, you know, something would work, even though he knows deep down it won't. Like, obviously, don't, you know, make people fall in love with you and then ghost them. It's rude. <laughs> it's really mean. Yeah. It's not a nice thing to do. If you can't love them, just let them down gently. <laughs> but I'm a little bit nicer in my rating than you. I see it less as just doing it to, like, make hot babes fall in love with him. Like, less of the power trip that you kind of portrayed it as. <laughs> and more is that I think... I mean, Hal is a romantic person, in a sense. Not like romantic as in, you know, love. But, like, romantic as in romantic. Like, capital I romantic, or...? More like romantic as in, like, um... He likes playing the part of, of the romantic lead. Not even so much that <laughs> as that, like, he has romantic ideas about life in a way. This is a man who was got his PhD in spells and charms, ran away to a world where fairy tales are real, decided to become the most ridiculous, over-the-top, like, wizard he possibly could with the name Pendragon, of all things. There's, like, this drama and romance to his life. That I think, I think he likes that. I think he wanted probably to have a big romance, which is why I think especially that Tumblr joke about like the movie being his version, it would be. That's a big romance, you know? He honestly wants to find that in a way. It's just that he, one, totally like ill-equipped to do so just on his own level, then gave his heart to a fire demon. <laughs> Uh, like he has no idea what love or romance actually is just like fairy tale ideas about it right and then you know gave away his heart so he can't actually feel it so i think he is to some extent genuinely trying but also the other extent of like he knows he actually can't so he's still going through the motions and playing the part and for me it's more of a balance between the two in that there is some genuine desire there alongside his just desire to be the romantic hero, as you kind of put it. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say I have a kinder reading of his intentions. That said, I'm not taking away from the <laughs> fact that he doesn't get his comeuppance, but I'm not really sure. And I think, again, this is about, you even said it would be a different story. This story is very much about identity, um, which is why you have all of these characters being other characters or being made old or all of these things, and certainly Hal playing, like, five different personas and then finally having to be himself in the end. It story about Hal actually having to deal with the ramifications for his actions is actually the next book of the series. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not actually his actions in terms of um, how he treats women, though. It's the next book in the series has slightly more in common with the movie in terms of themes because it's about the aftermaths of war. Oh, okay. And uh, I'll just give you this just so you know, because I think it's actually interesting. But the war does actually happen between Ingri and the other countries. And the king ends up having Howl do big wizard bomb sh Not like in the same way as in the movie, but like you can certainly draw parallels there. And Howl ends up, I won't reveal the circumstances, getting punished for participating in the war and not for not trying harder to talk the king out of it or, you know, do something. Because he is 
literally the most powerful wizard in Ingri, and probably could have done something if he put his mind to it. He does get his comeuppance on something in some book. There you go. Oh, well, there, there. Uh, I'll... Oh, also, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. I just remembered this. I wanted to share this with you just because I thought y- you would find it funny or charming. I don't know if this is in the back of your book. It was in the back of mine. But it's an interview with Diana Wynne-Jones. There are some some cute things in here that I thought I would just read out. But the first question is, the Wizard Hall has charmed many readers across the world. What do you make of that? Diana Wynne-Jones. The one big strange fact about Hal is that almost every young woman who reads about him wants to marry him. <laughs> they began wanting to before the book was even published, and they all confessed their wish quite openly. Yesterday, I was doing a question and answer session in a London theater, and a teenage girl put her hand up and said, without any embarrassment at all, that she had long wanted to marry Hal and would I mind. I wondered whether to ask her if she would mind everywhere being covered with green slime when Hal's hair went wrong, or if she minded coping with a man who had head colds like a drama queen, or being twisted around Hal's little finger, or would it worry her that the man was a terrible coward, or always falling in love with other women, or... But I could see she regarded these facts as a challenge. (laughs) So I sat with my mouth open for a second, and then told her that she had now joined the end of a very long line that stretches at least once around the world. This did not appear to trouble her unduly. My opinion of Hal is that, much as I love him, he is the last person I would want to marry. Apart from anything else, I would want to get in the bathroom sometimes. (laughs) I do find that very charming. Thank you. There's also another line about... Because you also brought this up. Oh, a typical... Okay, so they ask her what's a typical day in in Hal and Sophie's Heavily Ever After. Diana Wayne Jones says, A typical day in the life of Hal and Sophie? Well, there would be at least two quarrels, one violent argument, and an explosion of strange magic. They are not a quiet pair. So, I do want to put it out there, just because I think it's important, that the book is not glamorizing this relationship. I mean, it is in the way that, like, we want Hal and Sophie to get together. And I do think it's a romantic story in that way. Um, But it's certainly not trying to make it into anything it isn't. These are two people who strongly disagree with each other and have some faults that will cause them to, like, have arguments and disagreements. And they like having those arguments and disagreements. That's a pretty key part of their relationship. Uh, It's what works for them. But it's certainly not saying this is the relationship we should all aspire to. Mm. It's saying that this is the relationship that for these people works, but it's really f***ing weird for everyone else. (laughs) And that, again, the next two books are not from Sophie's perspective. They're from totally outsider POVs, people we've never met in this book. And all those people are like, what is this? Why are these two people, why do they enjoy this? I don't know. I'm obviously very there for it. It's the kind of relationship that I love reading about because difficult, non, like, actually functional relationships are much more fun to read about in fiction than, like, ones that would actually work in real life, you know? It's it's kind of like the suspension of disbelief. Like, we all accept right. that this actually isn't really compatible or good or positive or healthy in any possible way. But... It's fun to imagine. Stick around for part two next week on Reread. See you then. Hey.